Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? Welcome to the Conversations That Could. I am Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that this life presents. And tonight, as our first season on the show wraps up, we're going to do something a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit different, in fact. <laughs> it is my pleasure to welcome journalist Sam Edmund to the show. Hi, Sam. Thanks a lot for having me, Derm. That is the phenomenon that is conversations are good. So we thought we'd, obviously, if it's not clear to people by now, flip the script, if you like, <laughs> and uh, turn the spotlight on you in this episode. So... This is going to be foreign territory for you. You're going to, and it's not the fact that we've run out of guests. <laughs> we've got a few in the bag still wanting and, and waiting to have their say. Your story, now why it is, is because your story is very much worth telling in in this space. So if you'd be kind enough to hand me the reins, I'll just lean over the desk now and just grab them. <laughs> there you from go, take them. Have you, I've listened to quite a bit of it. I mean, what's it been like for you to speak to such a wide range of people across the sporting landscape about their own challenges and their mental health journeys? How have you found it? 15 odd episodes. How have you even perhaps changed during the series? It's too big a and dramatic um, title to say it's changed me. It's certainly opened my eyes. It's certainly educated me. Uh, and it has certainly given me a different perspective. In the last 14 weeks or so, it's meant that I've taken little aspects that I out of my life that I'd normally take for granted and say, oh, no, what would that do to that person's mental health? Even just before we were going on air, we are talking about, you know, I, I love playing cricket, you know, social cricket with my mates down the peninsula, whereas we used to, you know, get into the opposition and bag them <laughs> a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, terrible shot, mate. I, I tend... I'm tending not to do that type of thing even, you know, just – and that's only a little pullback. But – and I, I'm also finding myself – opposition player plays a cracking shot. Well played, mate. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, seeing I better, find I'm a nicer person. Seeing better footwork from a snake was my personal um, favourite <laughs> out, out in the middle. And I think a lot of us who have listened and, – and Lane Beachley comes readily to mind here wow. – is, is – yeah. How comfortable people are with talking about their mental health struggles and uh, difficult days and darkest moments. Has that surprised you sitting where you are now? It, it has. Some people you can see they don't want to go to certain places. I, I can pick that. I know their background and I, well, I've got it all in front of me uh, and I've researched it and had a look at it and had a good delve into it and then they don't really lead you into that path. But then you get others who, who absolutely go, like Lane Beachley, why don't you ask? Well, that, that says more about you than me. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to offend you. And she says, well, it's no offence to me. It's, it's happened. It's real. So some people 
like to rip the the bandaid off and the scab with it, yeah, and and open up that that old wound, and and it's cathartic for them to explain it, and that that's one of the other aspects of doing this over the last fifteen weeks. There's no right or wrong. There's no blueprint that says mental health. The best way to get through this and navigate through this field. There's no blueprint that is one size fits all. There's many different layers, there's many different avenues for people to get through to reach the best that they can be. What I can I know with my own instance, I change dramatically. When when my and my mother doesn't like me talking about my family's mm. mental health issues and the passing of my brother and my father, but I remember early days when 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 my father took his life the first thing i wanted was people not to bring it up and just treat me normally mm. as if nothing had happened let me continue to exist the way i previously had and let me cruise on through and then about i reckon 12 to 18 months later i was happy to discuss it uh i felt it was once again, that word cathartic, to actually get it off my chest, talk about it. But I even changed along the way. Ten years later or so, my, my brother did the same thing, and the same occurred. Don't Just let me process it internally. I don't want people to drag it out of me. Treat me normally. And then a time later than that, yeah, I was comfortable discussing it and, and the best ways that I found to navigate my way through those through those choppy waters. So no no one size fits all in this in this world of mental health. And we'll speak about your your father and your and your brother a little bit later on in this program. But that that that's I guess is the obvious assumption and understandably that it is difficult for people to talk about subjects such as this. But do you also think it's common and have you have you perhaps grasped over the last fifteen odd podcast episodes that people are also hesitant and reluctant to perhaps even ask the question, are you okay? Is this something that perhaps people feel a bit uncomfortable to confront some of these issues and ask of people, you know, their, their, their mental health challenges? It's it's even the words, are you okay? It, it's a very short, it's a punch in the face kind of Bang. question. Yeah. Are you okay? Sometimes it can be... Uh, with caution, just flattened out a little bit. Hey, mate, everything all right? That That's just the way you phrase it. You, I think you should – and are you okay is a fantastic way of doing it because mm. it gets it out there. But if you know the subject, the person, and, and you have a relationship with them, which I would hope that people do when they are asking the question – you might know a slightly better way for them to be the recipient of that question. So it, it yeah, it's, it's important how you make that 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 first bridge, how yeah. you how you step across that. You obviously retired, magnificent career in the mid nineties. Ninety five was it was your final season at the Pies, of course. Um, you probably get asked this question a, a heck of a lot. And, and in your game, your field of uh, expertise, AFL Australian Rules football has come a long way. We like to think anyway in players and coaches and staff expressing that vulnerability and being honest about their low points and their downtimes. Can you possibly put into words how far you think your particular industry has come in the years since your retirement from the game as a player? Oh, leaps and bounds. Yeah. Uh, and, and you say, what has it done to me over the last 15 weeks? I remember, uh, and thank, thank this 
thank God we've got the chance to speak to Schwatter, Wayne Schwass. He was fantastic. Yep. And Nathan Thompson, another friend of mine who played at Hawthorne, he he had mental health issues. And I remember being, and, and forgive me for this, this is when we're, we're all a little bit less educated, I remember when uh, Mark Robinson had the article with Schwatter and had the had, there was articles on Nathan Thompson, and I was a young, even though I was in my thirties then yeah. and retired, I was a smart ass to Robbo. Well, I turned around to him and said, "Hey, Robbo, I'll give you an interview. It's about a bloke who played league football, drove fast cars, got paid really well, got drink cards everywhere he went, and he's an ex-footballer, and life feels fantastic." And he went, "Yeah, not everyone's like you, do." And I was like, ha, 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 ha. And then through time, we've all become educated. You know what? It is a bloody difficult path. And then when a job finishes, then when a loved one leaves you, then when something goes wrong in your own personal life, you realise just what mental health does to people. Mm. So I I absolutely abhor that person that said to Mark Robinson as a smart-ass, I'll give you a great interview, (laughs) what's what's mental health, you know, it's it's great to be, because I didn't understand what it was doing to people. Was Wayne Schwartz the pioneer? I I, I remember that. It was front-page news of the biggest-selling daily paper in Australia, obviously, the Herald Sun. I mean, that shows you how far we've come since then. That was dressed up as... The biggest story of the day and resonated for some time that, a, that an AFL champion like Wayne Schwartz could come yeah. out and, and say what he said, his demons over a long period of time as a player. I've got a feeling the Nathan Thompson one was, was just first. before, but he never really gave an interview about it. What happened, and I remember, and once again, fantastic bloke, probably got it a little wrong at the time, um, Hawthorne. I was on the board and Nathan Thompson had, had some issues and... They spoke to the media and said, we're going to um, release a statement tomorrow. I think it was Tony Jones went with a story that night um, and all they had was footage at Hawthorne's training showing Nathan Thompson. They didn't name him, but it was apparent that... And the the doctors who'd been working with him had said, um, it will be best for Nathan's mental health if Nathan gets to tell... The story at a press conference, and, and and TJ went with it the night before, in the and and put the pictures of him. Didn't say it, so he he actually didn't verbalise it. But they were pretty dirty on him, and I think mm. Nathan was a little upset. And from that, it was just a short uh, announcement the next day. Um, just on that, I think we the media have got. We talk about how it might take practice to ask, "Are you okay?" and phrase in different ways. Do you reckon the media has got a lot better now? When when the alarm goes off that there's a mental health issue, it's almost now a cease and desist from the media. I'd like to think anyway that we take a step back and we give the person, whether it be a player, the coach, whatever, some time. Whereas back then, I think we were still trying to work out how to tell those stories. Well, well same again. We were learning. The media were learning, and. and there was always what I call in the media the chase, yeah, the story, the the want to, to be, be first, the first to the punch, the first to release the story was such a big thing in 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 a media person's uh, resume. I put out this story, and somewhere along the line it went, whoa, pull back, this is serious. People are 
doing things to themselves through mental health that we don't ever want it to come back on us mm. and we want them to be the best that they can. We want them to be in the best position that is possible for them. So I think the media's learnt along the way as well. And just quickly before we go to a break, even though you're interviewing me, call on the break. Um, <laughs> I'll decide when the breaks are, please. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I, I just – I think I look back at some football teams – and I look back at under-19s and reserves, and I was captain of the under-19s, and the coach would say, what do you think of this bloke? And I said, yeah, he's a bit flimsy. He's a bit this way. Yeah, he's not all in. No, I don't think we should pick him. Um, even my coach, Alan Jeans, would say, what do you think of this player here? And I said, yeah, same sort of thing. You know? um, yeah, talent. I don't know if he's all in. Mm. Is he quite there? He seems to uh, resile away from certain aspects. He recoils away from hard yakker and hard. How many of those blokes did we stop playing and not give a game to that had mental health issues that we just didn't understand or know about mm. back in the day? We might have lost some absolute stars and champions to the game because we didn't understand it. We might tap into that after this uh, break that you've kindly thrown to. I'm Sam Edmund. My guest today is none other than, well, the normal host of this show, as it uh, turns out, the AFL legend that is Dermot Brereton. And this, of course, is the Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? More with Dermot Brereton in a moment. Welcome back to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Hello and welcome back to the Conversations That Could. I'm your guest host today, Sam Edmund, and our guest tonight is Dermot Brereton, the former Australian Rules football champion, considered to be one of the greatest players of his generation. Of course, a five-time VFL, AFL premiership player with some, well, 464 goals under his belt during his distinguished career. Derm, just before the break, we were talking about what things were like at, at, at Clubland, you know, Alan Jeans at the helm and and perhaps the players that who would know we, we lost because we just couldn't tap into the things that we can tap into now. If I was to ask you what the culture was like in Clubland when you were playing, can you flesh that out a little bit? And remarkably different to what it is now. <laughs> Unforgiving? <laughs> um, okay. The main driver was if you're a player today and something goes wrong, let's say you play pick a position, half or flank, half back flank, yep. something goes wrong, you go to – your line coach, he can't sort it out for you. You go to the senior coach, he can't sort it out. You either get doled off to, if it's a financial issue, you go to the C, uh, the, the chief financial officer. If it's a, a mental issue, you'll get pushed out to the doctor. The doctor will then send you to the um, clinical therapist. It could be psych, psychiatric or psychiatric, uh, um, somewhere in that field. Mm. There is half a dozen people that you can go and speak to that could assist you. In our day, you went to Alan Jeans. No one else. That was the coach. The coach drove the environment. And what you had was somebody who was an unbelievably good man mm but it was his view of the world and how it lay. Like a one-size-fits-all almost, wasn't it? You, if you didn't you, fit into that hole, then there was 
not, seemingly anyway, not many other places for you to go, Babs. Absolutely. Mm. We, the whole demeanour, I mean, lads still be lads and they have their fun and yeah. they, uh, in their own unique way, but the, the, the whole demeanour of the, the culture of that football team was drawn from the one person who gave them their charter and that was, that was your mood. Would anyone dare put their hand up and say, listen... Uh, Jeansy or Derm, I'm struggling here um, no. mentally. I've got some no. issues. Would anyone dare show weakness? No, no. The, the closest that came to it, and I don't think you'd mind me saying, was Gary Bacanara snapped his patella tendon in the 1983 mm. um, uh, uh, Premiership Grand Final against Essendon. And he was, you know, about 5'11", 6' foot as a player and probably weighed about 83, 84 kilos. He went down to about 70 he just threw the worry and the like. So he had some issues there mentally. And it, we saw him just waste away and just through the worry because he's a, an overthinker. He was a real good deep thinker, um, Bucky. And I remember some blokes thinking, you know, seeing and uh, them and, and chatting, yeah, Buck just can't pull it together, can he? Yeah. That was the attitude in rather the day. Than- rather than, hey, let's get around, Buck. What's uh, go- let's get yeah. to the bottom of what's going on. And to his absolute credit, <laughs> probably just 100% self-driven, um, yeah, got back to be once again an absolute champion ever. player. Yeah, so so we, we – I don't say we weeded him out. We we didn't understand. But, yeah, because in that space it wasn't a protective arm-around sort of environment, was it? It wasn't – mental health wasn't even a, a – was that even discussed at that, at that no, time? No, it was you come good and you can rejoin the group. Or? Yeah, or, or that's the end of the road for you. So it was a, yeah, it was a fairly primitive attitude to anything yeah. that might, in you know, encompass the mental health uh, world. And so coming into that environment, a professional environment as a kid, I mean, that's hugely intimidating and confronting and life-changing for... For, for, for youngsters coming into the system. So did you have times early in your career where you, I don't know, this might be strange to you, Derm, doubted yourself or, or struggled with various pressures that came with such a significant change in lifestyle? Always doubt. You always doubt yourself. And I mean, you're a little fellow who comes from Frankston and you hear about the size of this country and there's blokes being recruited from Perth and South Australia and north of the border and... You just think, what would make a little bloke from Frankston Rovers any good? You, 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 they're huge out there. Mm. I walked in there and, you know, as a 14-year-old, was the first time I got taken there as a, on a scholarship squad. Um, by 16, I'm training with the seniors and I'm seeing men. You know, I look at the players now and they're athletic young men. They're, yeah, they're, they're big boys but these blokes back in the early 80s, they were men. Yeah. I walked in, there was Kelvin Moore and Don Scott and Alan Martello. These blokes had mutton chop sideburns. They tow along their wife and three kids to each game. And it's a rarity to see a player with a with a, a family and kids in tow these days. Yeah. They, they're, they're boys, they're, they're big lads, but they're boys in comparison to the men back in those days. So it was intimidating, but that was the world we knew. There was no such thing as they're going to embrace you, they're going to look after you emotionally and mentally and get the best out of you. It was you go up there 
and you've got to make it. You're on your own until you make it. So you spoke about how Alan Jeans, as the coach back in those days, was the one-stop shop for any problem that you might have had. Um, how You've spoken previously about the night that Alan Jeans died, and I think you described it, am I quoting you correctly here, as a beautiful and cherished, one of the most beautiful and cherished moments of your AFL career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if somebody's... If they can't tell you the absolute truth on their deathbed, they're not t- telling you the truth. Yeah. So, yeah, he told me a few things which meant meant the world to me. And I I can pick up that piece of paper you looked at before and say there's marks and kicks and goals and games. But until you feel – and they, they're just numbers. I mean, so I run into an open goal and, and you handball to a younger player to get him into the game sideways – and give him a goal. So how many times do you do that? So have you robbed yourself of goals? Have people done that to you when you were younger? So their statistical information, do they really mean – yeah, they, yeah. it's a good reference, it's a good guide, but truly the people who know are the coach and your teammates and do you have the respect and the love of them and especially the man who pulled it all together? And – um yeah, don't really want to betray him, even though he's on the other side mm. too much. I'm not betray, but give out his final words. I mean, I've mentioned one of the things he said to me, but um, yeah, that that's worth its weight in gold. For a, for a man on his deathbed to say what he said to me, um, yeah, in the final words, um, I'll see you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew he wasn't going to – I somehow knew he wasn't going to get through the night and he didn't. I just pulled over and burst into tears. Yeah, because when you're a footballer, for someone like me who loved footy as a kid, um, football was everything. I'll be remembered as a footballer. I hope my kids remember me as a father, <laughs> but I'll be remembered as a footballer, and and that's 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 my stamp. And for the one man who meant the most to me, to say what he said was just yeah, that was probably the biggest. Uh, accolade I've mm. I've had. Yeah. yeah, it's lived on with you. Yeah, time hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it still see, moves me. When I, I can see it in you now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so when it is everything to you, injuries are are a big deal. And and by the end of '92, you, you've got chronic hip pain. You're struggling to to get out there regularly. You didn't play a game in '93. And so then when the Hawks offered you a minimum wage contract at the end of that year, you chose to leave. Um, mm. How did you cope with injuries over the journey? Because they they became severe and they became crippling at times. Yeah, so when we go through it at the end, uh, the last four seasons I played, only two, three, four and five. Pain? Um, I think I played 28 games in four seasons and 15 of them were in the last one with Collingwood. Yep. Yeah, look, that's but there's a lot of players who do yep. that now. Um, but how does it tie in with everything we, we know now that we didn't know then, which, of course, is when you can't get out there, the demons can start to surround you and the, and the mental health can flare up. That's mainly about not getting out there. Yeah. The, the pain that and still lives with me to this point in time, you know, I'm sitting here at the moment and I have to rest my left leg on the ground because my knee's a bit too sore. Um, yeah, I, I remember telling people close to me and, and the likes when things would go wrong, I said, I'll take any physical pain over mental torment. And the torment for somebody who believes that they were born to play football, 
not getting out there because of injuries. That hurt. That, yeah, that, that, that makes a big downer in your life. It leaves a huge hole. Um, by nature, combative, um, loves a contest. Mm. You, you just want to be able to, to do that. And when that's taken away, that, that leaves a hole. It does, I guess, as you say, the mental demons can flare up when you can't get out there. What about uh, off the back of, you know, you were praised for your intensity, your white line fever, if you like. Some <laughs> I don't of the think things, I was that white line. But some, yeah. of the things, yeah. some of the things that you did on the football field, um, and we don't need to back It's my Lane Beachley moment. Just say it, Sam. <laughs> Just say it. Well, you stomped on Raiden Tallis's head, which is probably the one, I am I correct, him. <laughs> correct in saying, it lives on with you more than the others, perhaps, in yeah. a, in a, in a in a regret sense. Every time we're on on air and <laughs> and you know somebody will ask an opinion yeah. and we have the uh, it gets raised. The, the the text comes through in the dozens. I'll you know I'll say oh no that one should slide through the keeper. But if I turn around and say oh come on that bloke's chased him down and whacked him, you can bet your bottom dollar just like you stomped on Rosen's head. <laughs> Stuff like that it always comes back and it's a fair call. It's a but but. In, in Lane Beachley um, form here, it's stained. It's stain. Is it a stain? Um, it, it, some people might think it is, and but but for me, I know what what had occurred before that. It's not. <laughs> it's not okay to say it was okay. Sorry to use that phrase. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was one of those things where once again, highly combative. Um, a few things were said to me which. Put it this way: the things that were said to me, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have said to anyone else. I, I would think it's more uh, warranted to actually give somebody a clip than say the things that were said to yeah. me. So I was pretty fuming at that stage. Yeah. And do you ever wonder, sit there and wonder in your own sort of thoughts, what would, how it would have been received if you'd done that? Now, like the scrutiny that's on players now, and the, the increased media attention, and how outraged we all are, social media and the yeah. like. Can you imagine if you did that in twenty twenty one? Yeah, you're looking at something with a one in front of it. Yeah, <laughs> you're looking at Phil Carmen's sort of numbers there. Yeah, yeah because it, yeah, and uh, might I say too that those comments that were made to me by the the opposition players, which was Hawthorne players too, I'd, I'd gone to Sydney. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, I I couldn't have stomached that without doing something back to them, uh, and it wasn't Raiden who said it. It was, and you've never yeah. said what the no, no, there was no no to. Well, it's, yeah, it had a little bit of a family element to it. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Do you think now, just in your line of work, obviously since you know retirement as a commentator, analysis, and and all the like, the sports media have perhaps a, I don't know, a, a bigger role now to play in ensuring they don't contribute to the mental pressures on players who may be struggling? Because we see that from time to time when we perhaps don't know the full story, we rush to judge, and then hindsight's a wonderful thing. Of course, it comes out. So do we need to tread warily in some There's space? There's such a difficult field yep. to to travel there. One is these guys, on average, you know, the the average wage is well. You can say the average wage is four hundred thousand, a little bit over four hundred thousand, but the average wage is not over that. That's the total salary cap divided by players. Yep. Uh, there's, you know, to to fit your stars in, you've got to have players on you know one hundred and sixty to two hundred and twenty thousand. There's a few in there, which is still a good wage, um, but they're not stars. These guys, they're they're playing the role. You take on one hand, you say, 
you say to yourself, well, I have to call it honestly how I see it. And if you call it honestly how you see it, sometimes you know the recipient of that call is going to look at that pretty uh, dramatically and it's not going to do him any favours. Do you, do you tame it down? Do you call it accurately so those who want to get the absolute true picture that you're seeing receive that in that form? Or do you take into account this could emotionally hurt this fellow and that is an area I don't want to transgress into? Mm. So there's all these aspects within that field. Some blokes don't cop it. When I was a player, I hated hearing it, but, but it wouldn't get me down in the dumps. It actually would make... Yeah, I'd go a little bit harder. Get you going, yeah. Yeah, so some some people will deal with it somewhat differently. It is a difficult field also because for an ex-player, there is an ex-players club that takes you a while in the media to get out of that club. Mm. Some players do it fairly quickly. Uh, yeah, it took me a couple of years. You know, something would happen and I'd go, oh, yeah, it's not too bad. And having said that, in this day and age, I still think, you know, we have room for a little bit more robust activity out there. I, yeah. uh, I think the game's cleaned up for the better in 90% of the areas. I still think we have an area where we can show the world it is a little bit dangerous to play this sport. Now, I still think we can be a bit more robust in certain areas. I'm Sam Edmund. Our special guest tonight is the AFL great Dermot Brereton. And this is, of course, the conversations that could for Are You OK? And it's brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? And just a heads up, we are going to be discussing suicide in a moment. So listener discretion is advised. If this conversation does, in fact, bring up issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome back to the conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Hello and welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You OK? I'm Sam Edmund, your guest host this week as we turn the spotlight, flip the script if you like, on the regular host Dermot Brereton, who of course needs no introduction, but we'll do so anyway. Former AFL player turned commentator and media personality. Derm, for those who perhaps don't have the full story, tell us a little bit more about your childhood, your early family life and your early years uh, growing up down there at uh, the gateway to the peninsula, Frankston. <laughs> Yeah, Franganistan. Yes, uh, it was known. a fantastic place to grow up. We lived on the edge of Frankston, uh, Frankston Heights area. Sounds really bad, but it was a good middle-class stock area. You yep. know, for, um, both parents worked. My mum worked in you know retail in shops, and my father was a teacher and then moonlighted at night. School teachers weren't meant to have a second job, but he was a professional musician, so he worked at night. Um yeah, played local footy and local cricket with the Frankston Rovers and Heather Hill Cricket Club. So, yeah, had an idyllic bringing up. It could get a little rough when you were a teenager and you went into Frankston to play the pinballs or anything like that. could get a little bit more than a little bit rough. Hanging but, by the train station there as we, we did back Well, then. the old train station, I yeah, we used to jump off the train and there was yeah. a hamburger bar on the other yeah. side there and... Yeah, we were always in Frankston and, yeah, looking for, up to no good and a little bit of mischief and enjoying ourselves, yeah. So when did football become something where you thought, well, this is fun, but I can actually make something from this? I always loved footy. 
I can remember being a seven-year-old kid and being at my cousin's place and uh, the the replay was on at 7.30 on a Saturday night and I think they played one and a bit quarters on Channel 7 on a Saturday night and I couldn't understand that they wouldn't have the f- footy on. I was just like, can't we watch the footy? No, we never watch the footy. They were first-generation Irish-Australian, so the Irish parents and Jack and Muriel and my uncle and auntie, they'd be watching something else. They just Aussie rules didn't mean much to them. But my brother, you know, you get led into it by your older siblings. My brother played um, at the Rovers. I followed him down as a seven-year-old and by 10 years of age, in my own age group, was the best player in the in the team and sort of stayed that way yeah. all the way through. And at, at 14, I got an invite to play in a scholarship squad, which became the Crimin squad. Um, and that was for players who they deemed to be one year off playing under 19s. Now, I don't know what, what it's like but for you, but at 14, I was about 5 foot 11. <laughs> Thank God I grew a bit. And about 60 kilos playing centre-half forward in the, in the under-14s. And... <laughs> You get invited up there to the under-19s and there's some big lads. And I thought, well, I'm way out of my depth. So I played in the midfield when I first got there in the under-19s as a 15-year-old. Played there again as a 16-year-old in the under-19s. And, yeah, it was was kind of evident that I'd been earmarked to, to go on. Yeah. So your father, of course, is an influential figure in your life. He watches mm. you come through. He helps you. He drives you around everywhere. He's a loving dad, of course. And by the early 90s, 93, he's seen you already have a magnificent career. You've won all the premierships. You've got all the accolades. It's It's been a dream. Then it becomes a nightmare because mm. your father takes his own life in, in the year of 1993. Yeah, and it's been documented before. Like he, uh, and once again, I'll try and be brief on this. Like I said my mum doesn't like me talking about it too much, and that's understandably so. Um, yeah, he had a a wonderful, in some aspects, childhood himself in, back in Dublin and horrific in the other area. Um, he went to the uh, Catholic Brothers School, so that was the horrific aspect of it. Mm. That manifested itself as it went along and got himself into a bit of trouble along the way. And um, much to my regret... Uh, when he was uh, mentioned in dispatches in, in, in trouble, I rang him and left a message for him to say, do the honourable thing and just take take your, yourself out, take your own life, which was um, a selfish thing of me to say, but I just felt so horrified by what I was hearing. Um, he did. Had to live with that ever since. Um, deal with that ever since and uh, yeah ever since that day I've missed him every day and that's uh, that's the price I've had to pay for it um, yeah so that that's when my world came crashing down and I realised how much effect people's words can have that's mm. mm. impossible to put into words I'm sure but the immediate aftermath of that were you public about it at the time did you did you internalize no. it as you said for a good 12 18 24 months where you just shut everything out? yeah I just didn't want to know about think about it talk about it I just wanted people to treat me as they had previous to it normally and, and so I could just 
try and function as the the person I was and just let me keep going with with my life. Interesting to note too, um, one of the people who I I would say, I would describe it as emotional intelligence is 101 out of 100 and I've always been friendly with him but not super close and he saw it and his name's Grant Thomas and I only met him through Russell Green and after that with with um, my dad passing, he rang me and said, right, going to come around and pick you up and take you to golf. I hadn't played golf for six months. And he took me to golf and he did not mention my father once. I mentioned he said, yeah, sorry to hear about that. All right, what ball are you playing? <laughs> what, what club are you playing off the first? Yeah. He never mentioned it for the whole round. And it was the first person who got me out of my house after uh, probably about day five or six after the incident and his emotional intelligence to understand that and actually that was the first thing that got me out of the house rather than just wallowing in my own sorrow. And that comes back to what you were saying off the top about are you okay, the question comes in so Mm. many forms. Absolutely. And that was, and this is 1994, that was his understanding of it. yeah, so we, we, I remember when Tomo came on the scene, he was coach of St Kilda. People was like, gee, he's doing things slightly different. It's all about, you know, um, the, the welfare of the players, yeah. you know. Gee, they gave him a night off tonight. They all went to watch the pictures. He's so tapped in, yeah. so tapped in at understanding people's personalities and where they sit, and it is an absolute gift that he has. So you had to deal with that, which is more than anyone uh, would have to deal with when it comes to their father. If that if that's not enough, um, what did you say? Ten or twelve years later, one of your siblings, your brother, takes mm. his own life as well. Yeah, well, one of the things that you, was evident you could see through playing in my career, I was very emotional. You know, I would give emotionally. He was emotional as well, my brother. But worse, my emotion then would tip into deeper effort. <laughs> and dare I say it, more aggression in that effort, his would go in the opposite direction. He'd get very emotional and then a little bit of withdrawal Mm. and uh, a bit of self-pity. And so uh, perhaps if if God had just evened us out a little bit, he'd still be with us. If I had a little bit more of his empathy um, and he had a bit more of my want to fight against the odds and what was standing in front of him and making him feel that way, perhaps it might be different. But uh, I got overloaded in one area and he got underloaded in that area. Just the last one on this. What impact did you, your brother's passing have on you, obviously a decade or thereabouts after your, your father's death? Yeah, well, as we mentioned where I grew up. There was many a time where, you know, we probably moved around four or five times in, in housing through Frankston, his dad got different posts and mm. whatever with teaching. Um, out of our first 15, 16 years of, you know, cohabitating together, we probably spent 10, 12 of that in living in the same bedroom. So you, you, you're very attached to your brother. Um, yeah, you know what, what makes them tick and, my God, two brothers two and a half years apart, can you fight? And... Uh, you know what? You know what buttons to press. <laughs> Did you so, get him more often than not? 
Oh, he was he was fully grown at about 13, 14, right. probably six foot, six foot half an so inch. So no. No, he used to knock the bejesus out of me. The only time I got him, this might tell you a little bit about me. When he wasn't looking? Uh, well, he wasn't <laughs> looking. I got into his, his, his bed and I put thumbtacks underneath his bottom sheet. <laughs> How barbarous is that? <laughs> and he jumped. He was barbed, all right. Uh, he jumped into bed, and then the guttural scream he let out, and for that glorious ten or twelve seconds, where I knew I'd won, between that <laughs> and when my dad came in, and you could hear, you know, when I don't know if you, you might have been a good kid, but you know, when your father undid his belt buckle and you hear it get pulled out and it goes through the eyelets. <laughs> And you know the belt's coming out until 10 or 12 seconds later when I heard the belt being pulled out of the belt bucket. You're in dreamland? <laughs> I was like, I've won. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we left all that anecdote. I'm so but glad he we was did a it. Fantastic bloke. He's a very good guy, very emotional. Um, and and the, the, the good thing is trying to make people understand now what I can pass on, he was savable. He was savable if we had have understood back then what he was going through. So just quickly then, because we, we're hard up for time, but yep. what advice would you give to someone who is who is either wrestling with this out the other side of a tragedy or they feel like they're they're slipping down the slope or one of their loved ones are? To... Time and input. Yeah. Input. I, I was speaking to him, you know, for an hour and a half each night. He came and lived with me about the issue that was troubling him and vexing him. Um I probably should have done two, two and a half hours a night, but it might have saved him. So I, I, I do believe he was savable. Yeah. And if our conversation tonight has raised some issues for you, you can call Lifeline on thirteen eleven fourteen, and you can do so twenty four hours a day. Beyond Blue, they're reachable on one three hundred twenty two forty six thirty. Six. A big thanks to Dare Iced Coffee for supporting uh, the show. And when you make bottles it up, a Dare fix, well, it certainly won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? I'm Sam Edmund. We'll wrap things up with the great Dermot Brereton in just a moment. Welcome back to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A Dare fix won't fix it but a conversation could ask are you okay Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You OK? I'm Sam Edmund. Our guest on the show tonight is the host, funnily enough, it's Dermot Brereton, a five-time VFL, AFL Premiership star. Played 211 games over his career with Hawthorne, Sydney and finally Collingwood between 1982 and 1995. You've shown remarkable resilience and you're an upbeat. You're always a glass half full sort of personality. Every, every listener here on SEN knows that. Um, what do you do? What do you do to in these years of your life uh, to, to, to keep your sanity, to have fun, to stay fit? What occupies the life of Dermot Brereton these uh, days? I know everybody says, you can do whatever you want. You can't. <laughs> there are rules in place in society. Now, people say, you know, we like the song, be happy. You know, what does that mean? I just put myself in situations where I can get a laugh, where I can be happy. I decided five or six years ago I would play cricket with all my teammates again who I grew up with. How good is this? So for 27 years I didn't play cricket with them and I found I was seeing them once every two years and loving the time I spent with them. So describe yourself as a player then. 
Uh, I was actually a reasonable cricketer as a kid. Now? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm captain of the fourths. Yes. Uh, captain because of where I've been in the sporting sense. What do you bring for afternoon tea? That's the most important thing in the fourths. No. Uh, once again, well, I've got players, teammates who bring great cut sandwiches and the likes. I like looking after the kids in the opposition team. Uh, I bring the great big bag of chocolates and lollies. And, and, well, you can buy them in the pack. So I bring the lollies that the kids just go bang straight for. <laughs> um, and I have this belief, too, that a lot of my teammates say, you're really good with the opposition kids. You always compliment them and say, well, I have a belief that we should try and keep every... Australian boy or girl in a team sport of some sort as long as we can until adulthood and there beyond. Why I is just, that? I just think it's good to learn camaraderie, to learn team influences, to learn how to treat other people. Sport actually puts you at any level, if it's your best level, it puts you in a situation where your emotions are heightened. And if you can learn to deal with other people and situations when you're in a heightened emotional state, it's very good for you. And if you can then turn around, shake hands and laugh about it, um, yeah, all power to you. At the end of the day, everywhere, it's, so being captain of the force isn't just turning up and tossing the coin. It cost me 100 bucks each week because I shout the opposition <laughs> beers and drinks after the game. Do and, you really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I've got a couple of my teammates. One of them brings along a barbecue. He he goes off ten minutes before uh, afternoon tea and puts on thirty snags. Oh, good. Um, another one, Johnny, who's John Hilliard, the medal's named after him down the peninsula. He comes along. He brings you know half the half the booze as well. So and we don't let any of the other kids have an alcoholic drink. We give them softies, but all the other men, we shout them a beer or two. And, and it just makes for a wonderful environment. As, as much as we try and beat the living bejesus out of them on the cricket field and compliment them when they play well, we love to socialise with them after. I think that's a great thing. And we, we try and get a laugh every weekend. And just quickly, I know you bring the lollies to the afternoon tea in the fourth, but yeah. you, you, you make your own stuff at home. We've spoken about this before. We've had some horrendous lockdowns here, but you haven't <laughs> wasted any time. You've turned into a master chef at home. I've just, uh, as we speak at the moment... You got something uh, slow cooking at home? Yes, I, I actually I do. I do. It's been on for about eight a hours. A ragu? Uh, no, it, it's the um, uh, the big shanks, big lamb shanks. Oh. And I even go to the point of like surgically with a razor blade, a razor sharp knife, taking off all the sinews before oh. I put it in there as well. So oh, stop now! Yeah, it's such a balmy day. Typically balmy day in Melbourne. <laughs> you'll, you'll you'll enjoy that when you get home. So the biggest takeaway. Derm that you've had hosting the show as we sign off on on season one here on conversations that could I mean could you quickly summarise the biggest takeaway for you in your, in your foray into this space? There's no, there's no one. They've all got to be intertwined. Yeah. Be yourself. St- have as much fun as you can. Put yourself in positions where you can laugh, where you can smile. Be kind to others, and that's an easy an easy throwaway line. But I find that since this is true. I find since I've been doing this show, if I go to the supermarket and there's some poor bugger sitting outside the front there, I won't give him a a 20-cent coin. I'll give him a $5 note. 
and I don't notice if somebody's fortunate as myself, I don't notice it. Now, there's plenty wealthier than me. I don't notice the $5 missing, but that means a world to that bloke. Mm. And it might get him a cup of coffee. I've just become more generous in spirit to other people. So I would suggest to people, just do stuff which you say to yourself, will this make me feel better how I treat this other person? And you know what it invariably does at the end? That's great advice. It is great advice. And if our conversation tonight has raised some issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And you can do so 24 hours a day. Beyond Blue, they're reachable on 1300 22 46 36. And if you've enjoyed this episode of The Conversations That Could for Are You OK? and you'd like to share it with a friend or, of course, access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversation That Could wherever you listen on podcasts. And you can catch up, in fact, with the entire back catalogue that Dermot Brereton has hosted so magnificently here on Season 1. Derm, fantastic. Great to talk to you. Good on you, Sammy. It's going to take my gig next year, eh? Not at all. <laughs> Couldn't. You're irreplaceable. A, a reminder as we sign off as well, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it by any stretch, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? And as Derm says, that question comes in so many forms. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here soon.